This is a Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, covering our books on the environment, politics, religion, history, law, and biography. I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Michael Mann, author of On Wars. Michael Mann is Distinguished Research Professor of Sociology Emeritus at the University of California, Los Angeles, and Honorary Professor at the University of Cambridge. He is the author of the award-winning book series, The Sources of Social Power and of Incoherent Empire, Fascists and the Dark Side of Democracy, Explaining Ethnic Cleansing. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. I look forward to our conversation about your new book with Yale University Press on wars. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. In On Wars, you note that most studies of war have been conducted by historians and international relations scholars with a particular focus on Europe, while you approach this history as a comparative and historical sociologist. Can you tell us more about how this book emerged from your academic positioning and prior research? Well, uh, my series of uh, of, uh, volumes, uh, The Sources of Social Power, distinguishes four sources of social power, uh, ideological, economic, military, and political. And so I had paid quite a lot of attention to military power, except that when I finished the last volume, I realized I hadn't written very much about what militaries essentially do, which is to make wars. So I began a research project um, which combined data from modern, mainly political scientists, uh, which is often statistical, counting wars in one way or another, and historians' views of prior uh, wars. Uh, But I did differ from historians in that I was interested in long sequences of wars. And so um, when getting away from a Eurocentric uh, position, um, I uh, uh, looked at the the long run history of wars in China, Japan, um, uh, the Americas, uh, and of course, Europe itself. um, Because I think wars don't come as separate, isolated events. They come as sequences and the prior uh, prior events and uh, solidify certain cultures and institutions and make wars more or less likely in the future. And you note in in the preface that your interest in wars doesn't necessarily speak to your personal experience, but I found that the note on your family lore or mythology was, you know, quite charming that, you know, you were born in, in a hospital basement during the last um, World War II bombing raid in, in Manchester. And I and I think that, you know, that um, note is a really, you know, interesting opening to this really substantial look at, at wars throughout the ages and, and throughout different um, geographies and, and countries. Yes, but that was my last direct experience of wars. Right. Really. And obviously, I don't have any memory at all of it. Uh, some... Um, 
sociologists and uh, uh, tend to study themselves, their ethnic group, their gender, whatever, their immigration status. Uh, but like anthropologists and many historians, I'm a sociologist who likes to study things that are not like me. And war is definitely not like me, and I don't have much, I don't have experience of it, but I wanted to understand it. Yeah, and, and you also, you know, note that at, at the end that those who the book is dedicated to and the whole of humanity, you know, hopefully can be as, as fortunate in, in never having to fight wars and suffer as civilians in wars. Throughout the book, I, I want to return to, you know, your intellectual line of questioning. And, and you ask, you know, the monumental question, are wars driven by human nature, the nature of human society or other forces? Are wars rational? And as I mentioned before, you cover a variety of wars throughout the ages and, and across the world. Um, can you tell us more about, you know, what you have concluded as the main causes of war throughout this history? It's surprising how similar wars are throughout history. I mean, obviously, the technology of war, the weapons, the organization has changed dramatically. Uh, but you get the same mixed emotions, the same miscalculations, uh, the same uh, triad of uh, uh, rational calculation, uh, ideologies, and emotions. And the Together, the three of them power uh, processes leading to war. So uh, that is the nature of human beings. It isn't that, that human beings are naturally disposed to make war, but when put in societies um, and uh, displaying this triad of uh, motivations, um, human beings have tended to act in similar ways. Of course, uh, one of my main arguments is that very few people are involved in decisions for war or peace. And this doesn't vary greatly between democracies and authoritarian regimes, uh, that it is a few people uh, who are uh, interested in foreign policy and uh, whether they have interests in, uh, in it as well. But they take advantage of the fact that the vast majority of people uh, are not interested in foreign policy, have no real experience of it, and no vested interests uh, in it. There are exceptions, of course, there are pressure groups, particular pressure groups, but by and large, um, war decisions are made by very few people. And there are other aspects of wars. The frequency of war, there are people who have argued uh, that through history, uh, wars increased, and there are other people who have argued that through history, wars have declined, and they have been uh, prominent in recent years. Um, but my data clearly show uh, that there's no overall trend in the frequency of wars, um, that war is a very erratic occurrence. Uh, the years of peace uh, greatly outnumber years of war, but wars uh, do happen with more or less the same frequency in all historical periods for, uh, and today uh, on which we have knowledge. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, we 
would hope that um, you know war uh, might be less prevalent in representative democracies. But you, as you have mentioned, and as and as your data and analysis has shown, that contrary to most political views of political scientists, that these representative democracies have actually been no less likely to, to start wars. And I'm I'm wondering if you know we can turn to your discussion of realist and Marxist understandings of war, um, you know, what we would call materialist use of rationality. And and how how did these aid in, in your discussion of the irrationality of war? And uh, what are your critiques on the limitations of, of this position? Well, I applaud realism as a normative theory. Uh, that is, if rulers actually did think large and hard, uh, long and hard, uh, calculate odds very as precisely as possible, and decided uh, for war or peace on that kind of realist basis, uh, then the world would be a better place because there would be fewer wars, because most wars do not pay. We can see this clearly in relation to modern wars, where um, in terms of the uh, aggressors, the wars, those that start wars, now obviously some wars are not started by one side, but those that are, you find that the aggressor gets victory about 50% of the time, which, and, uh, which are not favorable odds for doing anything. That is that you might succeed 50% half, but half you wouldn't. Uh, but of course they are making decisions not about their own lives, but about the lives of young men, other young men. And so it's easier for them to uh, make these decisions without too much thought about consequences. Now, as far as the realist theory itself, it's not an accurate depiction of what happens. I mean, it's a good normative theory, but it's not uh, uh, empirical reality. And that is because there are a number of uh, factors that enter into decisions for war. Um, there is rational calculation and there is material interest, as Marxists say. Um, but as well, there are ideologies. And ideologies, uh, they kind of have a kind of national imprisoning effect. They imprison leaders within their own society. Uh, and they are... Uh, fairly ignorant of the potential enemy of the uh, potential enemy's society, and as well as um, uh, ideologies, uh, there are emotions, and emotions are very important in the run run up to war. Uh, anger, hatred, uh, these are very important motivations leading rulers to more aggressive actions than would be wise. And then as well, there's the institutional inheritance of societies. So if you take, for example, the fact that the US tends to intervene in a number of wars in a very recent period, uh, it's that uh, the institutions and culture of war for democracy, freedom, whatever it is, powerful uh, ideology and uh, emotion 
among uh, American policymakers. And so they are more likely to go to war than uh, many other countries. And you find that in general, the most militaristic countries, their um, militarism gets embedded in their institutions and their culture, and they're much closer to making war and, and, and for war to break out. Now, of course, there are um, many wars which might well be considered uh, rational. And uh, I find two main forms of that. Uh, the first is when uh, sharks swallow minnows, that is when great powers uh, attack small ones. Uh, but even there, they often make mistakes, so that the Russian invasion of the Ukraine is one such mistake where they greatly under, because they have negative views of Ukrainians, uh, and they're also, they, they have a, Putin and his people have a, a moral conviction that they're right, that Ukraine actually belongs to Russia, and that NATO has been expanding to their own borders. Um, but they underestimate the resilience of Ukrainians and the, their ability to get allies from other powers. And in this case, it's NATO. Now, this is a typical shark versus minnow uh, war, which doesn't work out for the, uh, for the shark. Um, but there are plenty too. And in fact, if you think about it, all of the great civilizations of the world they expand through war and conquest. And uh, so um, the minnows that they absorb into their empires um, might well have made an alternative decision, which is to submit or uh, to make a compromise with the great power uh, instead of which they fight and they fight uh, to their deaths. Uh, one thing that war has done through the ages is winnow down the number of states that there are. In Europe, there were, he knows how many there were in about 1200, and there are 30 something by the time you get to the 20th century. In China, there were 70 when we, we have the good knowledge of the. Of, uh, when we acquire good knowledge of, in Chinese history, and that ended up with one. Similar to Japan, the same uh, reduction from 70 to one. So um, war does have a certain logic, but it's not a logic that uh, necessarily brings benefit to people, uh, even where, um, if you think about European imperialism, colonialism around the world. Um, who benefited from that? Well, uh, like the, the colonies, merchants, uh, they benefit. Uh, but the, the French population as a whole, or the British population as a whole, uh, or, the, or the population as a whole, uh, barely benefited at all. So there's two kinds of war which um, could be regarded as being relatively rational. And one is shark swallowing minnows, and the other is wars of self-defense. Um, 
but that depends. Not all such wars uh, achieve uh, the best possible outcome. Within your answer, I uh, thank you for noting how you know wars can become embedded in the in the culture of society and the debate over whether some wars of defense are rational. And you know, I was wondering in, if we could turn to a question about the irrationality of world leaders. And I, I just wanted to mention that you talk about world leaders in a variety of geographic locations from ancient Rome to Ukraine, from Imperial China to the Middle East, from Japan to Europe to Latin to Latin and North America. And you know, while you do argue that war is not universal but ubiquitous, you know, I'm wondering if you can speak to this quality of irrationality in, in these world leaders um, who are moving their states towards aggress aggressive action over diplomatic proceedings. And what differences or, or similarities emerged within these leaders as you looked at a, a variety of them over time and over place? Well, of course, some some rulers are warmongers and some are relatively cautious or relatively peace-loving or uh, they want to concentrate uh, more on domestic issues than foreign policy. Um, so there are big differences. And the, um, but in interestingly, um, the great civilizations tended to be conquered by warmongers, then become a kind of uh, immortal. And we, we, uh, our own countries honor them, right? So you might think that Attila the Hun or Genghis Khan are not particularly admirable people. They are honored in their own homelands because that's the uh, their greatest um, achievement. Uh, the concern of these leaders is often not material. It's about status. It's often about demonstrating that they are the greatest ruler. Uh, they reward their followers, so there are material considerations as well. But the primary emotive driving great conquerors is the conquest itself and the, the, uh, the glorying in dominance. And I think that's been a, an underestimated feature of war. We should also note that we have a very biased history because it's the winners that write history. The losers don't. Often their uh, records are um, erased, their culture is erased. We know a great deal about the Roman Republic. We know little about the Carthaginians who uh, they defeat, who Rome defeated. And so the impression that war is, um, is, is is positive, is, achieves great things, is the point of view of the victors. It's not a, uh, um, uh, it's not a neutral observation about uh, war. And I try and separate um, material motives from motives of uh, status and honor, which I think are the, the main uh, uh, emotional 
uh, aspects of uh, the decisions to make war. And um, I think the status and honor are often more important. Yes, you know, what a what a great concession to our discussion that the victor writes history and um well can I can I add that they yes. um so history becomes a succession of, of glorious events uh because it's written by the by the victors and it makes it seem that war is more rational uh, as well as being more glorious than it really is in addition to to world leaders I also wanted to look at how you discuss soldiers um especially in our discussion of of ideologies um and and especially kind of the larger immortalization of of warmongering leaders how those types of mythologies trickle down and affect soldiers and you look at how soldiers accept the risks of war for reasons that span national pride moral qualms, a desire for discipline or comradeship, and a pervasive ethos of masculinity. Uh, you note in the book, quote, men have caused and fought virtually all wars, but this is due to their culture and institutions, not their genes, whereas guerrilla forces and recent armies have included many women. Can you talk more about conclusions on gender and militarism, which may be intriguing to some listeners? Well, there's not much to be said uh, beyond what you have just quoted, uh, that it, it, war is overwhelmingly a masculine uh, conception and that uh, conceptions of status and honor have a great deal to do with masculinity. Uh, mind you, what you said about ordinary soldiers, I don't necessarily agree with all of that. Um, ordinary soldiers are, um, well, they don't, before they enter battle, they don't have a realistic sense of what battle will be. They've read adventure stories or they've learned, you know, heard sagas of great adventures. Right, and I and I think you mentioned in the book that if, we had polled ordinary soldiers before they went to battle, most of them would probably vote to not enter battle. Yes, the second battle, that is. Mm. That is, having had experience yes. of what battle is really like, they would say, no, thank you. But it is unreal expectations, adventurism, and plus discipline, um, military discipline it, it is... It's very intense, and uh, um, and conceptions of masculine honor obviously do influence, especially uh, when the alternative is um, is to desert. Apart from the fact that deserters often get shot, um, the uh, that's a kind of uh, unmasculine thing to do. Um, but things have changed in the. 20th and 21st centuries. And probably women were involved in guerrilla forces from much earlier, but we don't have good evidence on that. Um, but in the 20th century, of course, the first, uh, the first country to have a regiment of women was uh, Tsarist Russia or Provisional Government Russia in 1916. Um, 
And Russians and Serbs have uh, have uh, notably seen uh, the participation of women in war. But it's still, of course, an issue about um, whether women uh, should be using or not. And even after there were large numbers of women recruited into armed forces, they didn't serve as for frontline soldiers. And that is only now beginning to be changed. But there's no reason for thinking that uh, if we did get a genuinely egalitarian society between men and women, that women would be active participants in war. But of course, there's a lot of a lot of feminine culture uh, is very markedly Pacific, and the idea is that um, that um, women are more Pacific than men. That is probably still true the brief you know mention of, of of this in the book was was fascinating to me as as we look at you know modern warfare and also how um you know fear of of demonstrating cowardice in the eyes of comrades or women may have been you know as you mentioned, a popular prop of militarism um, after battles have been fought or in kind of setting the ideological stage for war. But, you know, another main focus of the book is a concern on whether there has been a decline in war throughout human history or if it's um, only in our modern era. And this might be, you know, an <laughs> utopian or idealistic question, but, you know, do you see a future world where all wars are eradicated or perhaps, you know, there will be another form of warfare online or through novel means that will continue our proclivity towards conflict? Well, I'm very good at predicting the past. I'm not so great at predicting the future and nor is anyone, because human beings are, um, you know, emotional, ideological creatures, and you don't quite know what they're going to do in the future. Uh, there will be new forms of war, obviously. Uh, war. Oops. Uh, of course, we have there are already the weapons that could end all wars uh, with a nuclear war. But on the other hand, there is something I think potentially very positive, and that is that a quite separate issue, which is climate change, is something that can be only dealt with adequately by a vast extension of international cooperation between states. <laughs> and if we have that kind of world, where there is a great deal of cooperation and where uh, which results in uh, emissions being actually lowered and saved from climate change or saving ourselves from climate change uh, and the knock-on effect of that might well be to make international relations more peaceful not because people are anti-war but because uh, the impact of uh, so much international understandings on war or on militaries. That's fascinating. I, I think that thinking about the future hopes for international collaboration, you know, also um, in the face of climate change is is also 
is hopeful as as you mentioned and you know any wars that maybe you know fought over resources in the future i know that that was a trend in in the past that this these wars may be prevented through vast international collaboration i'm wondering if we can turn now to um a, a, an area, a modern war, and an area where international peace is threatened, which is the ongoing a war in Ukraine. In On Wars, you note that, you know, most interstate wars are actually wars of aggression. And, you know, I'm wondering, we you you had mentioned Ukraine previously before, but, you know, what insights do you have on on the Ukraine war as an ongoing interstate war? Well, the Ukraine war is... Uh quite traditional in many ways. It's a revisionist war, that is, where one power feels it has uh, a moral right to certain territory which has been taken away from it, right? And that's Russia and the Ukraine. It, it's also China and uh, Taiwan. And uh, so revisionist wars are not dead. Um, and uh, so one has to understand that there are uh, that the Russians, Russians and the leaders uh, think that they have a, a moral right to the Ukraine and also that they have the right to counter uh, NATO expansion to the edge of their borders, which uh, they say, and it appears to be true, uh, that... Uh, uh, Gorbachev was promised that that would not happen when the West and Gorbachev made a deal about Germany, that in return for the unification of Germany, um, Gorbachev got the promise that uh, NATO would not be extended further eastward. So the Russians think they've got a moral case, and of course the Ukrainians think they have, because Ukraine is only ambiguously been part of Russian history. Sometimes it's been part of Russia and sometimes not. And it it isn't now. And the population, a slight population of the of the um, slight majority of the population before this war started, uh, would rather that Ukraine was independent. Of course, the impact of the war has been to, to make that slight majority into a massive majority, uh, because uh, uh, because of the way that Russia has behaved in, in its invasion. But of course, uh, another traditional aspect is that um, wars are not fought primarily according to rules. Now and then there are some rule-governed uh, wars, uh, uh, generally after a, a period of devastating wars that gentlemanly, <laughs> with fewer casualties, um, but uh, modern wars um, have normally involved the bombing of civilian populations. And so that's a traditional aspect of the Russian strategy, which is trying to um, intimidate the Ukrainian civilian population into uh, surrendering. That doesn't work. It didn't work in World War II because all of the powers in World War II uh, bombed civilians on the expectation that that would weaken the resolve of the enemy, and, and it didn't. And of course, I have personal experience of that in my babyhood, uh, because that was the last German bombing of um, of uh, Manchester. And after that, 
it was the British who attacked German cities. So this is a, also a traditional uh, aspect. Uh, further one is the uh, Russian, which I've referred to already, is the Russian underestimation of the, of the Ukrainians and of the resolve of NATO. They picked a time where they thought that um, uh, the Russians, uh, Putin, uh, thought he'd picked a time which was relatively favorable because new German chancellor, uh, Trump in America, um, Britain leaving uh, the European Union, that this was all a sign of the weakening of the West. Uh, but he proved uh, that this was a mistake. And if he had thought harder and had some actual information on Ukrainian morale, rather than negative stereotypes of Ukrainians being inferior, if he believed it, fascists. Right? Um, so uh, all of these are conventional things. And I'm afraid it looks like uh, settling down into a, a long running uh, war of attrition, which neither side will win. So that at some point, there has to be negotiations, but we're not at that point yet. Thank you, you know, so much, you know, for your insights on the specific mechanisms of war, especially in our in the last question on on the war in Ukraine, and and also just your insights on the history of war. As we come to the end of our conversation, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with our listeners about your new book? Well, I think I would like to stress that it is about uh, wars uh, throughout history and across the world, insofar as we, we can get good information. So it would have been, uh, so though I have a discussion of colonial wars in Africa, uh, one, one of the conclusions I make is we have no idea of what the casualty rate among indigenous peoples was, uh, because the colonialists didn't record it. Um, and uh, so uh, I, I'm trying insofar as it's possible to uh, cover the world, um, but I'm very dependent. But I cover much more of the world than anybody else has done. I want to thank you again, Michael, for taking the time out of your day to talk with us about your new book on wars. Well, thank you for this conversation. On Wars is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.